0: All right, good morning, guys. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 15. We'll continue our uh, journey through Acts. I'm sure you were blessed last week by our brother Jason sharing about uh, the gospel and its power and going to Germany and whatnot. And we'll get back uh, stuck into our own journey here in Acts chapter 15. So go ahead and flip over there. And uh, we're going to read a chunk here, and then we're going to look through it and Glean some good stuff, I think. Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way Now, therefore, why are you putting uh, God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers uh, nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. A very important passage, a very fascinating passage. There's a lot of detail in here and history behind this that we'll talk about. So when they go up to Jerusalem, just to kind of put it in perspective, if you remember back in uh, Acts chapter 11, when Peter goes back in Acts 11, remember he goes and he visits uh, Cornelius. Do you remember that? And a Gentile gets saved, him and his whole family. Remember Peter's uh, there uh, meditating uh, on the roof of uh, Simon the Tanner's house. He's tired. He's hungry, evidently. And he goes into a trance and he sees a vision. And in the vision, three times, God lets down a a sheet. And in the sheet is every unclean animal. And he tells Peter, kill and eat. Remember that? And every time, Peter says, no, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered into my mouth. And the Lord replies to him through the vision and says, don't call what I've cleansed unclean. Or in other words, don't call it common. That's what the word means. Don't, don't call it common. What I've set aside, what I've said is holy, don't call it common. And so he has this vision three times, but he's perplexed about what it means. He doesn't fully understand it. But while he's right after this third time having the vision, a couple of servants walk up of this centurion and say, hey, my master saw a vision and told us to go to one house of, on Straight Street of Simon the Tanner and say, And ask for Peter, and Peter says it's me. And they say he says, and the Lord tells him go with these guys. Actually, the Lord tells him right before they come, there's some people looking for you. You need to go with them. So he goes with them. They travel back to where this Cornelius is, to where this centurion is, and. Peter gives him the gospel, he gets saved, his whole household receives the gospel of Jesus, and they all begin to speak in tongues, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and this giant event happens. So that's what Peter is talking about. So that event that took place is right around 37 A.D. You might recall it says here in our text, in the early days. This occurrence right here, when the Jerusalem Council takes place, which is chapter 15, this is about 48 A.D., So it's been about 11 years, remember these are all ish dates, nobody has it perfect, but it's been about 11 years since Peter had the vision, and then from this till this day today. If you recall, after the vision, shortly after that, Peter goes to Jerusalem. That's supposed to be around, uh, that's supposed to be around... Uh, I believe it's like between 39 and 42 A.D. They don't have really that one nailed down as close. But years later, he goes to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he's basically accosted by brethren of the Pharisees, like we read here, and they say, we heard that you went in, you spoke with and you ate with uncircumcised people. We heard that you went to Gentiles. And the point is, they're angry about it. And they're saying, why did you go into these Gentiles? You know that you're not supposed to do that. So why bring all this up? This has been going on for 11 years. Think about that for a second. For 11 years, there's been kind of this dilemma and and sects of Christianity. People that say, it started with, no, Gentiles can't be saved. To, well, okay, Gentiles can be saved because in that event when he goes to Jerusalem and he tells them everything that happens and there's other witnesses that come with him, it says that they're just silent. And then they rejoice that God is accepting Gentiles. So then from that point, they rejoice that God is accepting Gentiles. And then they say, well, they still need to do the law. So you have this kind of progression that's been taking place now for over 11 years about how a person gets saved. Again, I'm not trying to put down the early church, but sometimes in our mind, in fact, someone just said it to me the other day. They said, "Wow, if only we could go back to the early church where everything was so right and perfect and easy. Really? Is that what the early church was like? The early church was just as dysfunctional then as it is today because there's people in it. And there's ideas and thoughts and all these things. So when we look at today's chapter, there's different ways that we're going to look at it. Next week, I want, we're going to look at uh, essentially how to have a disagreement about something that really matters. Uh, there's a lot of disagreements in our world and we, we deal with a lot of different things and I thought about, should we do that this week or how should we do it? Next week, that's what we'll look at. What do we do with disagreements? Because that disagreement matters, right? It's not, should there be drums in the worship? That's like, uh, whatever. Should the major beat but on the second or the third or the measure? Or the, whatever. This is literally, how does a person get saved? And it's it's noteworthy that it took 11 years. Well, actually, if you want to go through to when Jesus was crucified between 32 and 33 A.D., it's been almost 15 years for them to decide how a person ultimately is saved, to finally agree on it. And, then, and it's not agreed, is it? Because even to this very day, this idea of being saved by obedience to the law or sanctified by obedience to the law, is still very alive, very active, uh, and, and taught every Sunday all over the world. And so this—this. This, how can we have disagreements and be able to dialogue? Because there's so many great hints in here, and we'll, we'll talk about those next week and how Paul and Barnabas handle it, and they go up and all these different things, and they're able to be brethren and to discuss it and so forth. But today I really just want to talk about what the heresy is, what the, what the problem is, and the very fact that they're called believers. Did you catch that? It says that when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the churches, verse 4. Uh, and the apostles and elders, they declared all that God had done with them. That's, that's Paul and Barnabas. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These are believers. And I want to point that out. I'm not saying we should accept false doctrine or anything like that, but we, can't, we have to be careful when we say, if you believe that, you're not really a believer in Jesus. If you believe the health, wealth gospel, if you believe when you have enough faith, God will do anything you want, you can't be saved with that gospel. If you believe that you worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, you can't be saved with that gospel. If you believe that you have to speak in tongues to be saved, you can't be saved if you believe that. You can't be saved if you don't believe that. Right? We have all these things in Christianity, these ideas that we can come up with that are, that are fairly important. And I just noteworthy that they were believers. They believed that their sins were forgiven through Jesus Christ and His blood shed. They just didn't understand how that worked. So we can be careful when we're dying, not to, not to shrink back from the truth, not to, to, to shrink back from what the Scripture teaches us, but we can be careful how we measure and judge and try to label people that have significantly different beliefs than ourselves. Again, I'm not saying let's accept cults. I'm not saying let's you know, bow down and, and, and concede to bad or her- uh, you know, heretical doctrine. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's not measure the people that have it let's preach the truth, let's give the truth, let's love them, and we'll let God decide who actually received him and trusted him and who didn't, because that's not for us to decide. We're going to stick to the truth, we're going to preach the truth, but we're not going to measure people that we believe that have a different or a wrong way of looking at things. So in these believers, what they come is they say, you have to be circumcised to be saved. We should not be shocked that this is a teaching, should we? The church started with all, 100% Jews. Well, at least we have no recorded Gentiles getting saved till later. We have Hellenistic Jews, meaning people that were Gentiles, and they got converted to Judaism, and then they're there at the day of Pentecost, and they get saved, right? So you have the 5,000, is that what, 3,000, 5,000, 3, 3,000? They get saved, and the church is born, Right? But the majority of what we have listed, could there have been some Gentiles mixed in there? Sure. I mean, I'm not debating that point. But the point is it was vastly Jewish. Vastly Jewish. So you have people that get saved, and then they're called to leave this Jewish teaching behind, right? Without Paul's epistles. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have all this written out in any language they speak and as many copies as they want or anything like that. They have itinerant teaching and some letters later on to be able to start working with. I and mean, really, the bulk of the letters don't come until the, the late 40s into the 50s and 60s of the, of the you know, first century. So the, they, all of a sudden, they're, trying to, they're working through all these things. So they're Jews. They've always had to be circumcised, right? This is before the law. Remember, circumcision predated Judaism, right? Circumcision was given to Abraham before the law was introduced. Now, was it in the law? Sure, it was in the law that every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. That was in the Levitical law. It was part of it. But because it predated the law when it was told to Abraham, God said that circumcision is going to be the token, the personal Outward token that you are my people, right? Does that make sense? It was literally given to Abraham that for all Jewish people, it's a patriarchy, so it's looked at as, as uh, men as the head of the family, as their family, that those individuals, that they are God's people. So that's drilled into your head from the eighth day if you're a male, and if you're female, you see what happens to all of your brothers every single time When you take them to the temple and the priest cuts off the foreskin, so it's ingrained into everybody's mind who's ever been saved for the longest time. Now, we know that the Church of Antioch has started up. So it's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us that there's some ideas, cultural ideas, that, are, that are, have religious significance that are actually given by God, right? This isn't just something that Zeus came up with or some other false deity. This is given by the true and the living God to initiate the entire lineage of Christ, <laughs> Right? So why would we be surprised where here decades later and even to this very day that there are people that say you need to be circumcised? That was the outward point that God said is how you know or you show that you're my people. It's to be fully expected. Why shouldn't we be surprised that they say they need to keep the law? Well, if you start reading the Old Testament and you start reading the scriptures over and over again, he says do this or you'll die. Do this or you'll die. Do this and you'll live, right? That was the law. The law was obey it or die <laughs> or, or severe punishment. So again, when Jews start getting saved and they're saved by the living God and, and Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish promised one comes in a time where there's a radical interpretation of, or misinterpretation, excuse me, of prophecy, uh, why would we we'd be surprised by that? Remember, they didn't, for the most part, understand why Jesus was there. The, the Pharisees didn't. The, the, some of the harshest words that Christ had were for Pharisees. And he made the point. He said, you can tell the skies. You know what, what the weather is going to be like by the sky. But you don't know that this is your day of visitation. And you're rejecting me. So throughout time, they wildly had an inaccurate idea of what all the prophecies would be. Um, and, And then Isaiah makes it very clear that it was through hardness of heart that they rejected the prophecies. It wasn't that God blinded their eyes so they couldn't understand it. They made choices, and God ultimately honored those choices. So in this case, if we kind of fast forward now, they're in Antioch. Not in the Antioch we've been talking about in chapter 13 and 14. Remember, that's kind of more in uh, the kind of the northwest. This is the original Antioch. This is the Antioch that's like 300 miles north, almost due north of Jerusalem, right? That's This is that Antioch. This is the Antioch where Barnabas gets sent. Remember, there's a dispersion because of uh, persecution. And the church sees that. A bunch of people start getting saved in Uh, uh, in Antioch. If you recall, the Bible even tells us, Luke records for us through the Holy Spirit, that people, uh, that there were only a few people, a few of the people that were being uh, persecuted that were running, only a few of them were actually willing to talk to Gentiles. So what you have is kind of these renegade Jews that were being oppressed, and they're being uh, uh, attacked, so they flee for their lives, and a couple of them kind of have this, or I, I say a couple, it, it seems, just I think it says a few is what it is. We, we don't know that, in comp- I don't know what it is in comparison. So there's this kind of subset of individuals, they're just preaching the gospel as they go, they get to Antioch, they start preaching the gospel to uh, Gentiles, and they start getting saved, right? And, and Antioch's a very rich city, it's a city that is... Um, uh, steeped in idolatry and, and radical uh, sin in general. People start getting saved. The church hears about it. They say, hey, we got to send Barnabas. Barnabas shows up, says he observed the grace of God among them and encouraged them that with steadfastness of heart they should continue with the Lord. Then Barnabas, for whatever reason, the scripture didn't tell us, but he decides, you know what these people need? They need a Paul. At that point he saw. They, they, they need a Paul. They need somebody with a Gigantic brain that can lay out exactly how salvation works. Barnabas is an encourager. I'm not saying he's ignorant, but his gifting was being, he was called the son of encouragement. So he encourages them, but then he goes and gets Paul. Paul comes back and starts laying out the nuts and bolts uh, uh, reality of the gospel. And it says that they taught many disciples. So lots of people getting saved. Lots of people being discipled. Paul and Barnabas are teaching them daily how to grow in the Lord. All that to say is there's a, there's a movement and a, just an awesome thing happening in Antioch, and God is moving by that, okay? So years later, all right, people decide, hey, there's this giant church, people group that are getting saved in Antioch. And they are, it says here, Some men came down from Judea uh, and were teaching the brothers. Now, so there's this booming church thing going on in Antioch. It's it's going around how big of a deal it is and what's happening. And there are some men that come down from Judea. Now, when we look at the map, we say, well, why would you say they were coming down from Judea? They went north to Antioch. And it's, again, it's just simple Jewish tradition. It's always up to Jerusalem. Whenever you read the scripture, it's always going up to Jerusalem. Yes, it was on a hill. It's not like some gigantic mountain, but that's always how it's looked at in the Jewish culture. You're always going up to Jerusalem. So the idea is Jerusalem is in Judea. They went down from Jerusalem, but they go north on a map. Does that make sense? So they come from Judea, probably from around Jerusalem, and they show up and they begin to teach. And they say this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we have a couple of options right here, don't we? And if we're familiar with the Scripture, we know that this is one of the most talked about, perhaps the most, I've never like sat down and tried to count it, but at least one of the most talked about subjects in every single letter in the New Testament. Right? This is one of the most addressed subjects that we have. And it shouldn't surprise us either, right? Because they literally wrestle with it until today. <laughs> right? So for the last 2,000 years... This has been a wrestling match in Christianity. And so these guys come down. We don't want to measure these guys. There's, it could be tempting to say, these stinking false teachers. These guys, they, they just want to destroy what God was building. They just wanted to, to ruin it and break it and all these kinds of things. And that may be true, right? Because we know in Galatians and in Corinth and all these different places that Paul visited, there were these guys called the Judaizers, and they were people that Paul referred to as false teachers, and they would show up after he left, or somebody who established the church left, and they would kind of creep in, and this was the gist of their message. The Sabbath, the dietary laws, and the circumcision. So we don't, if I can make a a hypothesis, okay, so this is an opinion, you can throw it away. I don't think that that's where we're at yet. And the reason I don't think that is because I don't think the false teacher label really surfaces, other than, I mean, idolatry and so forth, but the false teacher label until after the Jerusalem Council. Because that's where you finally have this apostolic judgment, this apostolic creed that comes forward and they say, you do not have to follow the law to be saved. So at this point, this is pre that, right? So at this point, these are just guys. They could very well be guys that are just concerned for the church, right? We have to to realize that sometimes when people share false teaching with us, it's not because they're motivated by Satan and they're destructive. It could be that Satan uses that, but it's because they might darn well be like, we really want you guys to be saved. So you need to get the snippy snip and start watching your diet so that that can happen. It could be genuine concern. So we don't want to measure these guys. Now, if it's post the Jerusalem uh, uh, council and post the apostolic judgment on it, well, then, and, and into the kind of the Galatian region where there's people that are rebelliously teaching that, well, then, then we can talk about it. But all we know is that these are guys, they show up and they say, you have to be circumcised to be saved. So, Paul and Barnabas, it says here, in verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And we'll cover more about that next week. But the point being is that these guys, it says they had no small dissension and they had debate. And, and the idea isn't, when it says no small dissension, it's not name-calling, it's not like, maybe you watched the, the recent presidential debate, and it was a little bit discouraging, right? Because it was just kind of this argument, and everybody was talking over each other, nobody really cared about what anybody was saying. And I, I don't know about you, but I came away feeling like, I don't think anybody actually really cares about me as a citizen of the United States. I, I just it was, it was very discouraging. And in a lot of debates today, uh, outside of the presidential debate, that's how they work, right? Whoever yells the loudest can usually win the debate. Whoever's the most pressing, whoever can be the rudest, even unfortunately, if you go on YouTube sometimes, you can watch debates now, uh, especially about some sometimes about Calvinism and so forth, where it's, it's shameful because it, it, it leaves this motive we're discussing. A debate means to ask, the, the, the literal meaning is to basically to question what you're saying. To say, I don't know about that, what about this, and what about that? And so it's, it's a literal dialogue, questioning and challenging what the other person is saying. And let me just say this, that is not wrong. It's wrong to be rude. It's wrong to be angry. But in dialoguing with people, we should not take offense when someone says something like, well, where did you hear that? Where did you get that from? How did you, What's the evidence for that? What studies were done on that? Where did, you, where did that person get that? Have you ever? someone ever said that to you and it was an offense to you, like you felt attacked? And it usually goes something like this. Shouldn't you just believe me? I said it. I would not have said it if it wasn't true. You should just accept that. And if you question me, that means you're assaulting my person you're, and, and you're, really what you're doing is you're wounding my pride. I don't like it. So I just want to throw it out there. For humanity to continue, we have to be able to dialogue. We have to. And we'll talk more about that next week. But they get into a dialogue with these guys. They get into a debate. But it's not a debate like we have today. It's a debate where they're literally just sitting down and they're questioning and they're talking about, why are you saying that? Where did you get that? And it comes to a point where they say, okay, you know what? We can't really deal with that here. We're going to basically have a meeting of the apostolic minds, and we're going to take this to Jerusalem, and that's what they do with it. So let's get back where I want to kind of camp today. We have all this history, everything that's happened, to the idea of a person needing to be circumcised to be saved or needing anything to be saved outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Because I am convinced, as a closet legalist, I am convinced that many, many of us, this is how we actually look at grace. I do well, so God is gracious. Think about that for a second. What we say is, I'm an okay person, so God is gracious to me. In other words, I mostly mind my P's and Q's. I greet people at church. I make sure that I'm nice to most people. And so when bad things happen to me, like I lose my keys or I get in a fender bender, God is more likely to find my keys or help me avoid a fender bender. Or we look at it like this. We say, I've been pretty good this week. You know, didn't waste too much time. Didn't, you know, drink too much. Didn't whatever it might be. I was nice to people I actually don't like at all. And so then we come here, and the worship kicks in. This is, I, for me personally, the worship kicks in, and I feel so much more free to worship God, and you're so good, and you're so wonderful, and, man, you're the best. But if I've had a week where maybe I wasn't so nice to someone, or maybe I didn't spend all my time wisely, maybe I, you know, whatever, then I come in, and the, the worship starts, and I'm kind of like, oh, gosh, you know, I can't, can't really sing to you because... You know, I have, I've been a little naughty, and so I'm just going to have a little self-punishment and maybe some penance over here in the corner. And then after this, kind of hash this out like this for a while, you know, then maybe I can, then maybe I can join into the worship. Or we read God's promises where he says he's gracious to everyone. He's lavished grace on us. And we're like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I was naughty this week. I'm not really sure that I've earned the grace, that I've earned all the goodness of God in my life. I need to do some stuff, and then maybe he'll be more gracious to me. I'm convinced that many of us closet legalists live that way. And, you, and it's easy to spot, because something like this gets said. Uh, a guy that I actually love, Years ago, he said to me, he said, ma'am, you know what God's done at the the church there at Ocean Beach, that's amazing. It's got to be because of your faithfulness. And I was like, bro, please don't say something like that. Ocean Beach is what it is, whatever it might be, because God is good. Does, Does fidelity have a fruit? Sure it does. I mean, but anything good that God has done, it's not because James Aiken is the most faithful person in the world. He's not. It's because God is good, and His Word is powerful, and He's doing great things. But see, the legalist comes in and says, no, you did something. You did something to merit this great thing that God is doing. Take a, you know, there's different, you know, I only roll in Calvary circles, but there's many churches where you have a pastor that gets busted for, you know, some sort of immorality. But the church is discipling people, and people are getting saved, and missionaries are going out. And you're, and you're just being perplexed, like, how could that be? His works were not up to par, and God was still blessing it. That can't be. He didn't earn the grace. We really look at things in a behavioral way. It's so tempting to and, and really reflect on ourselves and to say, when I'm a good person, when I'm diligent, the servant of the Lord must be found faithful. You know, when I study enough, when I evangelize enough, or have you ever had this thought? I'm just not doing enough for the Lord. But it's not the Holy Spirit, it's guilt. I need to do more for Jesus so that He'll approve of me. That is legalism. You might as well go get circumcised. When we make up stuff for ourselves, that kind of makes us feel better and feel like now we have a reason to get the grace of God, we've moved to the place, we've moved away from grace, and we've moved into a place of works. Romans put it this way, to the one who works, it's it's esteemed as a debt, God's reward is esteemed as a debt. He owes me. See, when I look at works, fidelity, all these things, abstinence, when I look at fidelity as something that... um, earns me something with God, I make him an employer. I make him my debtor. I did this for you. Now you owe grace on my church. Now you owe grace on my life. I've been storing up favors with you because I've been a good boy and now I expect to find my keys the next time I I lose them like this. (laughs) Right? I expect your goodness in my life. I expect not to get sick. I expect to make money. I expect all these things because I've been a good person and now you need to pour out grace on me. And we think this can be such such a, uh, a dominant way of thinking. It's the circumcision, because it's just something that has always been. It is how our society works, and it's good for a society, right? It's good to have a school system where if you achieve, there's reward for that achievement. It's good if you're a boss to be able to look at something that says, Oh, look, I have these three names on here that I can call, and they'll say this person worked hard. That's not a bad system. It wouldn't be good to have a system where it's like, well, I'll just hire someone, and they can do anything they want, ruin my business, and I'm just, yeah, that's cool. I'm into that. But because everything in our life has been meritorious, we bring it into Christ. So what am I saying? Am I saying that, oh, man, do whatever you want. Obedience doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. God will just bless you. no, I am not saying that either. Obedience is paramount but it's paramount to our own personal lives and to be involved in building God's kingdom. It's not paramount in how I get saved. You didn't get saved because you were faithful enough to get saved. You got saved because you trusted that Jesus Christ paid for your sin, and probably about this much. If you were like me, you didn't know anything about it. You didn't know the ins and outs of the hypostatic union of Christ being God and man. You couldn't break down the Old Testament and the allegory and why these things were written aforetime for us. You didn't know how old the earth was. You didn't care how old it was. You didn't know any of that stuff. Someone simply just came to you and said, here's the deal, Christ died for sins. His blood paid for sins. Most of us probably had no idea that it was a fulfillment of an entire 2,000-year history of sacrifice or what the sacrifices represented, or the seven different offerings that could be made, or, and how Christ represented, though, and the Feast of Booths, and the, you know, all these feasts, and all these things, and the Jewish lore, and all it meant to us. We had no idea, did we? That Christ was fulfilling all that, and all the people looked forward to him. This is crazy, amazing stuff. We we're just like, dude, I am so wrecked, and guilty, and full of shame, My sin has gone over my head. And someone said, Christ died to pay for that. And there was no context for us much, for most of us, right? Just that here's the gospel. God loves you. God sent his son Jesus for you. We couldn't do a countdown on on everything that worked or when he'd come back or what the book of Revelation meant. We just heard that he he died and rose again from the dead and it hit us right in our heart. And we said, I want that in my life. And we received it, and we got saved. And nothing else meant a lick, did it? And then probably someone said, hey, well, now that you received Jesus, do you want to come to church? And we said, yeah, sure. This is what Christians do. That's what I, you know, I almost never went. I think I went to church like three times until I was 16, and always on Christmas Eve with my grandma. And, and, And so someone, I just thought, okay, well, this is what Christians do, right? Christians go to church. So sure, I'll come to church. And it was at church that I learned I better start working hard to make sure that God approves of me. So even though the gospel was that God loves me and he'll justify me, meaning make it just as if I'd never sinned, he'll give me his righteousness and communicate that into my bank account, even though I won't owe God a thing for my sin, it's funny how I can come to church and then learn, now I better start trying really, really hard or he's going to be upset with me. And that's all this is. It's just another instance where a cultural idea or a religious idea creeps in and steals joy. And so we have to guard, we have to be careful about legalism, this idea. Legalism is, here, let me define it for you. It's when we make a statute or law as something that defines our righteousness or that, that makes us righteous before God. Check it out, if you wouldn't mind, Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Because in Galatians chapter 5, there's a lot, I mean, like I said, so many letters. Hebrews chapter 10, so many letters. Romans, Ephesians, so many letters that that talk about the fact that salvation comes by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with law. Check this out. In Galatians chapter 5, we see, I believe, to be one of the most passionate statements that Paul ever makes about the gospel. He says there in chapter 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You know, funnily, or funnily, that's not actually a word. <laughs> Ironically, maybe because you, how you'd expect it. I don't know. Interestingly, here's the thing. How many of us, if you've heard this before, for freedom Christ has set us free, have quoted that about sin? Right? In other words, you know what? Don't go out and get drunk. Don't go out and fornicate. Christ set us free. Only don't use that for the flesh. But what's the reference to? The reference is to verse chapter 4, verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is a reference to Haggai and Sarah all the way back to Abraham. Uh, Haggai, uh, or Haggai, however you like to pronounce it. That seems a little rough. <laughs> you know, that her son, is, is uh, Ishmael, is a picture of the flesh, and Isaac is a, is a picture of the promise. So when he says here in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, it's don't go back to be a child of the flesh in the sense of religion. Now, is this true about other sins? Sure it is. But in this particular context, he's not talking about drunkenness and fornication. He's talking about going back to the law. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the law he's talking about. How do we know that? Verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Let's pause there. There's a couple options here, right? He could be saying, you'll lose your salvation. I don't personally believe that because of the context. What's the, He's writing this whole time, every reference in Galatians are to people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Is he now saying that if you go back to Jewish religion that you lose your salvation? I don't believe that. I think John 10 makes it very clear in many other chapters. The fact that he says, I give my sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And it's actually in the present active, I keep on perpetually, always giving my sheep eternal life. And no one can ever take that from them, is what Jesus is saying. We have Ephesians chapter 2. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Salvation is by faith through grace alone. That's it. That's how it works. Grace being God's favor in your life, that God favors you. So when we get here, he's not saying if you are a Christian and you go back to circumcision that that you get unsaved. He's making the point that's made many, many times throughout Scripture, and that is that if you, as a Jew or a Gentile, whoever you are, you get saved and then you, it says, accept. It means to adopt, to take in circumcision. In other words, to accept the work of the law over the sacrifice of Christ. He says, Christ is of no advantage to you. The point is, all the grace, all the peace, all the the blessing and the favor of just knowing that you're forgiven, it's gone. Not from God's side, but from your side. As soon as we move to a place to say, I did this thing, and that's why God accepts me, Christ is of no advantage to you anymore. He says, you're severed from grace. Does that mean that God is not gracious? No, how could it mean that? He so loved the world. He says he's gracious to the just and the unjust, right? We know that God is gracious to the wicked. He's gracious to everyone. So to try to make this argument here that he's saying, well, if a Christian gets saved and then goes gets circumcised, well, then he goes to hell. That is, There's no context for that. What he's saying is that if we go back to the law in any way, shape, or form, we remove ourselves from the blessing that God is trying to give us. Remember, Jesus said, I came to give them life and that more abundantly. That's not through circumcision. That's not through laws. Now, where does now, But at the same time, where does Bible reading and going to church and obeying God, where does that fit in? If it fits in this is what I'm called to do. And when I walk in those things, I live a blessed life, right? It doesn't change how God views me as a righteous person because Christ did that once and for all. It changes my interaction with Him. Think of a rebellious child. If I have a rebellious child and they, and they decide I'm leaving or I don't like your input, or, I don't care about you, it doesn't change their DNA. They are an Achan. They can do whatever they want. They can change their name. They can do, But they still will always be, by virtue of their heritage, an Achan. The Bible tells us to the believer, all things have become new. The old things passed away. They're gone. It's not that the old things are waiting in this little sin closet that when we're naughty or we get circumcised, God opens it up and goes, ha Old things! I knew you sucked. To hell with you. Right? But that's how we treat it. When he's making the statement, you're saying, look, you cannot, we cannot turn to anything except the grace of God for our salvation. And it's fascinating that this is the most disputed point for all of history of Christianity. We constantly want to go back to say, no, 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 I earn it. He's gracious to me because I'm faithful. He's gracious to me because I do my devotions. He's gracious to me because I'm nice to my family and I honor my father and my mother. He's, no, he's gracious to you because he loves you and he, and he wants to bless you. And he sent Christ while we were yet sinners. And it's, this is the grace that we get to be involved in. This is why we can come and sing. None of us have ever done enough during a week to get to come into the presence of God and worship him. It has never happened. Not to Mother Teresa and not to us. It's never been. Every single time we get to come in here and we get to lay down our life and we get to worship God and we get to say thank you that you saved me, it's always been on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. Always. That's why we have peace and joy. It feels like a guilty pleasure. We have peace and joy because of what he did. We have security because of what Jesus did. There will always be consequences for sin. We're not making light of that or making it small or, or ineffective but that doesn't change how God looks at me because he sees me in Christ. So Paul and and Barnabas are just absolutely willing to go to blows for this. Paul goes on, and he says there in in chapter 5, he says, uh, verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So we're still waiting, we, we, Christians. We're waiting for that finality. We have an expectation of being finally rid of these uh, of the sinful nature and of these fallen bodies, right? So we eagerly wait, but it's by the Spirit, by faith, right? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. Now, this is, this is even more interesting. So when he says that it doesn't count for anything, only faith working through love, is he now talking about salvation? Because if you take that point of view, then what you're saying is if my faith isn't working through love, I lose my salvation. Anybody ever here spent maybe, like I don't know, a day or two not loving other people and just chapped about something? Did you get unsaved and then have to get saved again? Did you have to get rebaptized? No. When he says that circumcision or uncircumcision don't count towards anything, it's still this idea of fulfilling some law that's the, the, the fulfilling some law for righteousness' sake or fulfilling what, uh, uh, what God's purpose is. So when he says, look, being circumcised or not being circumcised, that doesn't earn you anything. The only thing that has effect, can we get, now we can get to some works, not for salvation's sake, but for God's purpose' sake, the only thing that, that matters is that our faith is working out through love that's what counts you want to know what the not the great white throne judgment that's that's is your name written in the book of life or not but you want to know what the beam judgment for christians about is your faith being worked out in love that's the bottom line anything not of love and faith will be burnt away that doesn't mean if you sit and watch tv on monday night that somehow that's not of faith no your faith can very much say like hey i'm tired i'm gonna rest i'm gonna watch some tv with with my friends or myself or whatever that, that's not what we're saying But if the Lord had spoken to you and said, hey, don't watch TV tonight, and then you do it, well, that would not be a faith. And that's making a a wrong step. I don't want to divert too far from that. But the point being is what's what's important in all that we're doing is trusting God. He says, you are running well. So he acknowledges, you were doing this. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So now he's going to talk about false teachers. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, this desire to follow the law and get circumcised, this is not from Jesus. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, he's making the point, remember, he's talking about false teachers. Verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you start to adopt this idea of righteousness through law, that will permeate through your whole life and through your whole church. A little bit of leaven. That's the challenge in this, to root out legalism. A little bit of legalism. God is gracious to me because I'm faithful. It will permeate your life. And the crazy thing about kind of buying into those ideas, a little bit of leaven, is that once you establish that you're doing something good, you become incredibly good at seeing people who don't do what you do that's good. And then you become, I become judge and jury. I only watch Michael Landon shows. (laughs) I see you rented something else on Netflix. Right, we become judge and jury. We decide who's righteous and who's not because we've done something that made us righteous. Hopefully, even though we're kind of going fast and we're out of time, hopefully we can get a glimpse at how destructive this idea is. To adopt any idea that I have a right standing with God saved through the blood of Christ, it permeates an entire life and then a church. And no one wants to come into a church where everybody's able to measure them and judge them by their behaviors. We just don't want to do that. We have to be so careful. We'll finish here. He says there, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Again, not necessarily talking Your Context is not... The bad sins, this is legalism, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Kind of like what we were talking here. He ends this whole thing by making the point that um, the, end of this, the end of legalism, the end of this doctrine of finding righteousness in anything save Christ, is that we bite and devour one another. It's where it goes. And for the statement I mentioned earlier in verse 12, I wish that those who unsettle you emasculate themselves. I'm not trying to be crass or something like that, but Paul makes it seems worthwhile to look at when, when Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, it's actually kind of funny, it's a play on words. Because the whole text here is mostly about circumcision, right? Which we know what that is. We don't necessarily want to Go into it. So what Paul literally says, he says, "They're teaching you to to to, uh, um, cut off your foreskin, to circumcise yourself." He's saying, literally saying, "I wish they'd cut the whole thing off." That's what he's saying in the Bible. I wish they'd emasculate themselves. I wish they'd cut off their entire genitals. Paul makes this is probably one of the most passionate statements ever been made in the scripture about one of the most disputed and important things that we have that Paul would go so far to make I'm not going to call Paul or the Holy Spirit crass but probably not something we usually talk about in church for Paul to make the statement to say I wish that they would not stop at their foreskin but just cut it all off and be done so for you and I what's our application what do we do with this for you and I When you go out of this place and tomorrow morning and the next morning after that, remember that you're right with God because you put your trust with Jesus Christ. He's not condemning you. Romans 8.1 tells us that. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not condemning you. Your sin will change you and hurt you and hurt others. But there's no condemnation. And God's calling you to obedience so that you can walk in the fullness of what He has for you but let's never bite and devour one another or look to some statute or standard or secret knowledge or all these other pitfalls that are out there to try to define ourselves as righteous or anybody else around us as righteous or unrighteous. Instead, by love, let's serve one another. And this week, if it's your, uh, your gig, your deal, when legalism creeps in, you start to think to yourself, I'm pretty darn godly. That's why God is so kind to me. Repent. Repent in that very moment. Run from that thought. Run from it and admit who you are. I'm a sinner by nature, a, re- a rebel that God loved and saved through Calvary. I was, uh, i was end with this, this illustration. I was at a coffee shop years ago and there was two other, there was a, there was a table where two guys were sitting at and um, I knew them. And uh, they're talking. And I wasn't trying to eavesdrop. I just hadn't got my earphones in. And one of the guys says to the, guy, to the other guy, guy A says to guy B, he says, man, he says, you're really gracious. I've never really gotten that. You're like super gracious. And the other guy says back to the, the guy B says back to guy A, he says, well, when you realize who you really are, it's really easy to be gracious. And that's the truth. When you realize what God did in your own life and you're honest about it and what he's doing and how much garbage he puts up with this morning and tonight, the thought processes that he, he cleanses us from over and over again, the ideas, the judgments. He's so gracious. And when we realize what he's done for us, it's, it makes it a lot easier to look at other people and go, oh, okay, <laughs> he's been gracious to me. I, I don't have to measure you. And I don't have to tell you what you need to do. I just want to help you in your walk. I want to use my faith and love. So great things are afoot for us. We live in troubled times, but uh, God is not done. Father, thank you for your grace, your kindness, and your word. Lord, thank you that you've not left us to our own devices. Lord, you've never rewarded us according to our iniquities. Lord, you've just showered grace upon grace on us. Thank you that when sin abounded through the law, that grace has much more abounded and it's the daily truth in our lives. Lord, would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that when we move forward and we interact with people, that we would allow grace to be shed in other lives. Lord, help our words to be gracious. Help our faith to work through love. Lord, may we turn from anything in our hearts that makes us think that we're worthy, except the fact that you've made us worthy. Lord, you're very, very kind, and we super appreciate it. Pray for a blessing on these guys as they go forward. Pray for supernatural uh, interactions with people. And we pray you be exalted in our hearts and our lives, in our church and our community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.